When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash Media. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan, heavy raider Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. How are you? This is a false start. I accidentally didn't start recording the video, so we did like 15 seconds yeah, or so. Yeah, we were just joking that we don't want to do this this episode twice. No. Talk no. about heavy raider. Whoa. My goodness. Kyle, Whoa. I wanted to do something. Yeah. I never get to introduce you. I never get to like, you know, I never get to do the, the host thing. So ladies sure. and gentlemen, may I introduce the bucket to my beast. Mr. Colin Moriarty. I think it's opposite. I'm probably the bucket to your beast, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna call myself the, the Pegasus. Your you're the Galactica. Oh, okay. I'm the new, oh, sort the of polished, more contemporary unit. You're the old, right, right, fossil, capable, right, the, uh, right, but rusty, rusted out. Right, right, right. Yeah. I understand that. That's not me. So it's good to be here with you today, Dave. I appreciate that auspicious, <laughs> uh, declarative introduction for me and. I'm glad to be here with all of you out there. This week has been amongst the very busiest weeks I can remember. Just not really by any other. It's just kind of by happenstance. And it also happens to be so hot here. And as everyone knows, I've been talking about, you know, I work out, get right into the show. So I'm always like sweating and wiping my face down as I'm like beginning the show. But I had this situation yesterday where we had to go to the bank because I owed money to the guys that are building our pool and they've been here all week so that's the whole part of this craziness is that they just decided to just do everything now that's no fun this week and it's well i'm like thrilled because like they just got a ton of shit done over the last few days but so anyway it just happened that i had a little bit of time i had to go get a money order or like you know a a personal check cashier's check whatever you call it and we were i worked out we micah and i went i've been taking cold showers after i work out to just like cool off my body after i work out and then so I go, I'm fine. We go to the bank. We drive 15 minutes, go to the bank. I come back, we come back. And then as I'm driving back, I start getting like really super overwhelmingly hot. And like, I look at my arms and it's just all beaded like sweat. And I start like feeling nauseous and shit. What? And I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm pretty hydrated. Well, hydrated. I just feel like my body, I don't think is really very at this age. I don't know, like very well adjusting to this Southern. St- I mean, we're not even deep in the South, but this Southern style humid heat, because I went to a warehouse or not a warehouse, a, a house rather that a friend of the shows uh, owns. He's like a builder and he flips houses and he had a bunch of games he wanted to give me. I gave a bunch of those games to you. I actually went primarily to get those games for you. And we'll talk about those in a moment. Awesome. But 
when when I was there, he's like, you know, always out in this. He's always doing his thing. The guy's like totally. It's probably like 100 degrees. Oh, right? I'm sure like, it is. Humidity there. has to be. It's and there's no AC on in this house or whatever. He's totally pristine. Totally fine. I am literally sweating like a fucking like a whore in church in this place. <laughs> Dude, I, I literally like the, I'm like crouching down on the floor going over games and the, and the sweat is just dripping on like every game as I go through it. And, it's, and I feel like crazy because this guy is just standing there like totally like moving boxes and, do, and he's totally fine. And I got back in the car and I'm like drenched as if because I get I sweat a lot when I work out, too. I think I'm just I guess I'm learning that I am a sweater as I get older. And um, it's weird because I'm do everything I can to maximize comfort. And yet I can't get a hang on this thing. So that's why I have a towel in my shirt right now, because it's just <laughs> cooling me off. That's why you're looking particularly perky this morning. Yeah, you were saying this I look, got some tater tots out <laughs> for display now. Dig, I wanted to ask you about the games. I, I, are you happy with the uh, bundle? I was so, you know, we won't I'm not going to we're not going to get into anything, any specifics. But, you, you know, you've been dealing with some, some things in your life lately. And we've been talking a lot about we've just been talking to each other a lot. Sure. And I feel really connected to you right now. Well, I always do. But, you know, especially now, I know you need me and, you know, I'm very you keep saying I'm very protective of you. And it's true and all of that. And I knew you needed. I knew there was something I could do for you. And I was trying to figure out what I could do. And then this thing kind of fell in my lap where this guy, you know, nice guy reached out. I was like, I have a bunch of games. And I'm like, I think I know exactly who would like those games. Oh, see. And so we went through. I picked out everything that I thought you would want. We bundled it up, box it to you. And so is it like a nice treasure trove for you? I know it's it's nothing like mind bending, but it's stuff that you needed, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, it worked out so cool. Yeah. I mean, you've been, you know, it's so nice. I was, I was thinking about this. Like, you know, lately things have been a little tougher than normal. You know, kind of personal things going on and stuff. But it's so nice when you have a family that, you know, you think is close and you think everybody loves each other. But then the rallying around when the going gets tough, you know, when when, you know, it got, it gets a little thick is really nice to see. It's like the proof in the pudding of what you always suspect. But when it's actually happening, you know, it's proof positive that you really have a good family. And yeah, you've been great through all this. And you, the, the lot of games has been awesome. Now, you got me a sampling of, of, of a few different things. First of all, I got a Sega CD console, which I never owned before. Grew up playing that with, with PJ a lot and um, thought I would sneakily slide onto eBay and grab a copy of Snatcher, Hideo Kojima's early, early uh, outing, very rare for the Sega CD, $1,800. So I'm not going to be getting Snatcher. I thought it was a few hundred, but I didn't know it was that high. Right. But the nice thing about the lot you got me, you got a little a little sampling of uh, SNES cards in there, some uh, Genesis stuff I didn't have. The bulk of it is NES. And oddly enough, even though they're not super rare titles, there's a lot of them. And for some reason, I just didn't have many of these games. You know, a couple of Tengen games in there, a couple of uh, like things like Jeopardy, Rad Racer 2, like things that are a little offbeat, but certainly not uncommon necessarily. But really rounded out my collection. It looks good. I have to send you some pictures. I, I did everything yesterday. I sort of rearranged my shelves with the new NES stuff, especially coming in. And it's looking good over there, man. I have to say, it's looking really nice. Yeah, we got to get, yeah, we, we should get a little tour when we can of your space. And yeah, I was, I was happy to do it. And, and it was because it was, I'm, I'm just flipping the rest of these, as I've said, for G.I. Joe's. And so that's really exciting. And I'm like so into just fine like i'm talking to people on the dl like i see a person like just a random person like yeah that i follow i follow these random people that like collect gi joes and i'm, I'm like, i dm with some of them i'm like yo i'm like i'm just, don't even bother with ebay i'll buy what you want and there's this one <laughs> there's this one dude that has like a mega collection including including the flag oh. and 
I was like, the flag isn't necessarily very rare, but it is the gold standard of G.I. Joe collecting. And I've seen some people turn them into coffee tables. And I think that that's like what I'm going to do if I get one. What a great idea. Yeah. Like, because I was trying to tell Micah, I'm like, you have to understand that this thing is like more than six feet long. It's ridiculous. And, and you and it's made to put the G.I. Joe planes on it. Yeah. Like many of them. We used to walk on it on time. I know we talked about that on the G.I. Joe episodes. Right. Like in order to get in and out of Tommy's room when we were playing with that, we used to have to step on it to get it. And it was totally fine. I mean, we were little. We were, what, 10 years old or whatever. But yeah, that's that's big even by coffee table standards, that thing, that toy. Oh, dude, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. So my mind, because I was like, I, that was not even a piece I was really worried about. And then I'm like, oh, if it's available, you know, and the guy's like putting some stuff together for me. And I, he had like a bunch of like random accessories. I love that shit. I'm like, I just want accessories, weapons, backpacks. Like I like putting that stuff together. Oh, it's fun. And like then finding the loose figures and like and then completing it with a bunch of different batches of shit I buy. It's it's fun. It's so it's so nice to see you, you know, so into that. You got to immerse yourself in a hobby like that. It's just it's essential. It's essential. You got to agree. Do it. I agree. You know, and. Uh, for me, I yeah, so I'm glad to give you those games and glad they brought some joy to you. And you should look up if you haven't. Hideo Kojima has been talking recently about some experiences of his early on in development. And he talks about Snatcher and um, Metal Gear before that and how. Oh, cool. He would he would like apparently go to like game stores in Japan, like local, local game stores and like hand out flyers for his games and try to sell them that way. And then he bought three copies of Snatcher on his own, I think, to like boost the sales. And, Can you imagine? Yeah. That's yeah, so, so cool. That's what all the video cool. game, the veteran video game developers need to do. They need to delve back and talk about like my early days at Capcom or my early days at Konami or whatever. Like it, th- that's the stuff I want to hear about, you know, that those, Me too. those beginnings. So, Me too. So Me fun. too. So fun. And so, yeah, it's, it's funny you brought up Snatcher and we'll see if we can get you a copy of that at some point. I know that's a, God. a game you really want. So good. So, so, so inspired by you know, classic sci-fi and cyberpunk Blade Runner. I mean, Blade Runner is all over that game. I've been watching like cinematics and let's plays of the game. It's so funny. Like, I don't know how I missed it in the beginning because I feel like we played even the really offbeat Sega CD games, PJ and I. For some reason, that one just wasn't, wasn't on our radar. But yeah, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, you know how I feel about Kojima, so. Yeah, no, of course. And so I also just want to give you a passing compliment on your Smith shirt. That's a great shirt. Oh, thank you. Very late comer, kind of a Smith's poser. I mean, I was talking about this with Helene. We were joking around like six months ago, like probably started really listening to them like a year ago. <laughs> Interesting. Well, it's a very Better late than dude, never. It's, it's an ex- no, I, I agree. I didn't get into them until college. And it's a very emotive sort of rock. I, I think it's the kind of rock that really bowls you over. And you can't just I don't think you casually listen to the Smiths. I mean, that's that's why I don't listen to them very often, because it's just it just brings you places that guitar that totally like, oh, it's just the sound and just the yeah, that oh, it's 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 beautiful and, and depressing. So I like the Smiths a lot, but I got we got to give a shout out to Allie, of course, because she's been a, a long time fan. Yeah. Long time Smiths and Morrissey fan. Just don't go on. You know, I made the mistake of looking at Morrissey and just, you know, outside of the music and just his personality yeah. and things he says and stuff. You don't want to. He's go. pretty right wing. He's, he's a pretty, pretty. He's a pretty. He's divisive pretty right dude. Yeah, he's very right wing. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, he's a. Yeah. He's a. He's um. Yeah, and he's very demonstrative. I mean, he's he's got a big mouth. I mean, he's very outspoken. I should. I guess I should say. And I never really knew that before. So sometimes it's like even no matter what the politics were, I don't really want to know. You know, sometimes right, you just don't right. really want to know. You just want to delve into the art. You know. I. So I totally that's for agree. me anyway. You know. 
I no, I totally agree with that. I, I don't take too much umbrage with him just because it's so weird to see anyone saying he says some divisive things, but also some things that I think I don't know everything that he said, but yeah, just some right wing things where you're like, oh, that's kind of mainstream right wing. But you just don't hear, you know, the singer of the Smiths. No, you don't uh, the see founder of the Smiths saying, right, you know, exactly. that's why I kind of appreciate J.K. Rowling and some of these other guys that are just like, you know, fuck it. I mean, J.K. Rowling's in like complete fuck it mode at this point, which I totally appreciate. <laughs> All right, Dave, let's get into the topic at hand. Right. It's a meaty topic, as we suggested. It's Battlestar Season 2, 20 episodes. And uh, we were going to do Razor, I think, for this one as well, maybe. But we're I, I think what we'll do is we'll do Razor separately. And maybe we'll even do the, the there's like a mini series or a web series in between Seasons 2 and 3 as well. Maybe we'll fold that all into an episode before we get into Season 3. I don't know. But okay. for now, let's worry about these 20 episodes. I'm curious what you think. You said something to me over over text that I thought was really interesting that you said Battlestar season two at some point this is when the show went from good to very good yes. that's what that's how you that's what you felt and uh, I'm curious to just hear your high your kind of high ranking thoughts or you know 40,000 foot thoughts about what you think of the uh, season yeah I mean that that for starters really sums it up I think the series went from good to probably about halfway through this season to thinking okay this is a very this is very good very well written very well realized great world building really nice evolution of the characters i think probably going in i have to say very intimidating topic just season two very big 20 episodes about 49 or 50 minutes each one and i tried to strategically i never i don't usually do this i'm usually pretty thought out and i try to get stay ahead of things but i tried to watch them relatively recently i think i only watched them all over the last couple of weeks just so i could kind of be fresh and not lose too much in the old old man memory banks. And also, I have to say, as much as I like the series and I can't wait to get into it with you, a couple of things. One, I know how much you love this series and how much it means to you, so it's really kind of a pleasure doing it because I know how 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 much you enjoy talking about this. And you're the one who turned me on to it. Two, you've seen the whole thing, you've seen the whole body of work, but I'm only, just to remind all you guys, I'm only through episode uh, season two right now, so I haven't spoiled, I'm not ahead of that, so I can only kind of articulate and converse based on what I've seen so far. So I just know that going in. I don't know beyond the end of ending of season two. And if I may, one thing, if I may proffer up just a little bit of criticism going in, one thing occurred to me in the series by the, I, sort of occurred to me through, you know, going through, but at the end, I sort of arrived at these thoughts. It's a very mercilessly heavy show. Very, very melodramatic with not a lot of levity. I think, now A, I think it speaks to the flavor of sci-fi that I'm sort of drawn to. I like fun. I don't mind the drama. I don't mind the gravity. I like a nice nice storytelling, great characters. Seriousness is fine. But like the best sort of episodic fiction that we know, we always talk about the Mad Men, Mad Men and Sopranos specifically. I know those are gold standard. But there are great examples of, you know, not holding back on the drama, melodrama, seriousness. I mean, look at Don Draper's situation, right? But they inject, strategically inject sort of absurdity, humor, maybe even going, you know, like I think about the lawnmower scene in Mad Men, right? <laughs> oh, man. Just yeah. brilliant, speaks to reality and also breaks up that sort of, you know, the seriousness, which starts to feel... It starts to feel it starts to feel stressful when you're watching stuff like that. It also speaks to a little bit of, and I know the creators come out of Star Trek, but it also speaks to Star Trek a little bit for me. Like 
either it gets overly technical or overly bogged down in sort of just being nerdy or serious. And I think you need a little more of that levity. I can't think of that many instances of levity over this entire season. So for me, that's really the only thing it really needs to be, I think, up there. You know, especially season two, to be up there with the Mad Men and Breaking Bad, Sopranos, all of the, you know, The Wire, all the great stuff that we've gotten over the past couple of decades. So that was really the only, you know, sort of mile high overarching criticism that I have for the series. But I mean, there's a lot to say. There's a lot to break down, a lot of story points, very well thought out, lots of characters. So I really can't wait to get into it with you. I mean, some of the greatest, probably some of the greatest character building I've seen from one season to the next very pleasant experience with that and you know i come out of this also i came out of season one feeling differently about quite a few of the characters when we talk about wrapping up season two so there was that evolution for me too of like really being drawn to some characters that i thought were sort of being i thought i thought they weren't i thought they weren't being well used you know i thought they they could have done a better job with certain characters and they they seem to address that in season two which i think is really cool some of those characters that i thought were squandered in season one. So I can't wait to get into it with you. We have a lot to talk about. 20 episodes, a lot of characters coming in and out, which we could talk about a lot of new characters. So yeah, I think, I think it's a, there's, it's funny because this, this season to me, I think I got to go back and look and I, I really haven't read about the production of Battlestar in a long time, but I feel like it was either in the second half of season two, because they were, they were, this, this season was, for people that don't know, these season the one half of the season happened in 2005. The next half of the season happened over in early 2006, and it was when when seasons started getting split up. And I think it was the second half where people started criticizing. I think into the third season that sci-fi wanted more one-off episodes that don't really speak to the plot but get into the characters and didn't feel like people missed something by not watching the serialized nature of it. I don't know that we've gotten to that fully yet, but it's interesting to me to hear your criticism because I, I I kind of agree in the sense I've always loved this show but I understand that it's not Game of Thrones it's not Mad yeah, Griffin. it's yeah. definitely not Mad Men and it, it is under that it, it even in production and thoughtfulness and stuff it's not Breaking Bad which I am not a huge fan of but certainly am much more fond of after we did our our recent three episode knockback about it but it's funny because what you find so nerve-wracking or stressful about the show and watching shows like this is exactly why I like shows like this. And it reminds me a lot of the conversation. And I don't know if you've heard anything about it, but the the show Ozark on Netflix, which I'm a huge fan of. That's the Jason Bateman show. show? Yeah. Yeah. That's the Jason Bateman. The first two seasons of that. Yeah. yeah. So you're familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. That show is brutal in terms of just no levity really at all. And just gets darker and darker as Jason Bateman gets, you know, more and more in. And it's a show that's really tense. Like people have a hard time watching that show because it's just it's like that. And I like it with Battlestar because if anything, my criticism is somewhat different where I feel like it's not serious enough. Sometimes I feel like it doesn't. I feel like this situation, everything in the in the show tries to ground itself somehow. The science is trying to be grounded and, you know, FTL drives is not really grounded science, but it's one way that they can figure out how to move ships. It's the same thing like they do in Star Trek and Cylons and and, and kind of robotics and AI and all of that. But I feel like this situation would be so dark that you could make it 
way worse than this. And you almost get a feeling of that when and this is where I want to begin with Admiral Kane. Mm. When she is introduced and I fucking knew you would love Admiral oh, Kane. I so couldn't good. I couldn't wait for you to meet her. And I can't wait for us to watch Razor so you can see what they were up to before. Oh, that that's what it centers on? Yeah. Oh, that's and, gonna be and, and as I told you, she meant she mentions to her XO. It's just a reference. She says when she's trying to get loyal Marines, she's like, I want the I want the loyal Jack razors. And it's a it's a reference to things they did back when they basically murdered a bunch of people, took their ships, Super took all sick. their supplies and left them for dead. So let's start here. And of course, on Knockback, which is supported on Patreon, patreon.com slash last media. We hear from the audience. You guys vote on topics, submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas. And Michael Steinmetz wrote in and said, how tense was that Pegasus Galactica standoff? So what did you think about the introduction of another ship? This whole group of people doing something else and integrating themselves and actually because of military protocol, they become the leaders for a little while, or at least Admiral Kane becomes the leader and Commander Adama is you know, at her behest. So what did you think of all that? I mean, you know, it was a shock to me. I mean, I love, first of all, this season, I love the way it delves into multi-part stories and then does one-off stories all in the name of, you know, like you said, speaking to the universe, the world building, it all makes sense. It all, it's all useful. It all ties in. I love the way they kind of swung back and forth between those kind of one-off stories and the multi-parters, but this is really the meat of this season. And this, for me, this arc is where the season really started to get strong. I think it, it was funny. I was talking to you and texting with you as it was going on. I think my first thought, oddly enough, was like, okay, they're introducing something mystical or supernatural here. This is a ghost ship or something like that. That So when everything panned out, spoilers, and it was a reality that this ship, uh, there was another existing battleship that survived the conflict with the Cylons. It was really, really cool. Such a revelation. It sort of doubles... The excitement in a way, because now you have two, you have a, a fleet with two warships, basically. So it was super fun. And I loved, you know, just in a broad way, a broad strokes way, I loved the disparity between Kane's sort of battleship and her fleet and her sort of legion and Adama's. And the way that it's quickly realized that they're handling their conflict with the Cylons in completely different ways. It really makes Adama... And the Battlestar and the initial, uh, the Galactica and the initial fleet look like they're really handling the situation with kids' gloves, where Kane and her entourage are dealing with the situation with much more brutality. Just, just really brutality and, you know, sort of a whole different approach to dealing with the Cylons. Both very believable, both actually kind of understandable. But I loved that sort of almost immediate conflict between Adama's Adama and Kane and how that sort of played out with all the, you know, with all the people, the officers, their, their sort of underlings and how that, you know, and how that kind of played out over a three part series. I was really sad to see Kane go. One thing this season does very interestingly is it gives us maybe with the, with the exception of one character it gives us a lot of new interesting characters and then at some point, whether quickly or in a more drawn out way, removes them with, I think, the exception of the Anders characters, the only new character that makes it to the end of the season. All the other characters are introduced and then sort of plucked out, which is interesting, I think, for it the is. most part. Yeah, I think I think that's done. I mean, I could be wrong, but it seems like they needed to introduce a second ship 
and yeah. because the second ship becomes essential to the future of the story. And so I think they did it in a really interesting way by, again, taking advantage of, from my perspective, 9-11, post 9-11 ethos sure. this time, you know, warrantless searches and holding people indefinitely and torturing Torture. people and fascism. Yeah. And that's what I, I said to you was I, Ad, Admiral Kane introduces fascism uh, to the show and it's been begging for it. And we, we, we mentioned last uh, last episode during season one that Adama could have made a fascist dictatorship, a military dictatorship the second that this happened and instead didn't do that. And he meets someone who did that and actually did it in the most brutal way possible. And one of the things that I wanted to bring up was I love her exo Fisk. I think it's a great character. Great character. And he's really his exposition. Interestingly, comes from his conversations with Ty yeah, when so they're getting good. drunk. And I love that Ty basically is taking advantage of him. And because Ty is usually a punching bag. Yes. And maybe rightfully so. But he's actually pretty integral in extracting exactly what these people have been doing and alerting Adama and through Adama, the president, as to the real danger of what's happening. And I love that they're getting drunk. And he basically says the first time tells this horrible story about how the first XO was murdered because he wouldn't execute this crazy suicide run on a Cylon Depot. And then at the end, he starts laughing awkwardly. And you realize that like he's he's slowly telling these people like Kane is someone to be feared. And I really love I love the acting with Kane. I love in, in battle. She has this like really interesting way about her. She holds on to her console and, you know, she has her own Mr. Guider or whatever. And she's like, you know, battle, you know, she looks to the left and like battle station, you know, and she like makes seems to make very deliberate moves. She closes her eyes and like thinks for a minute and then just executes on the move. It's a very deft performance. And so what did you think about the way that they integrated Pegasus in that society and, and how Adama overcame and, and it showed some darkness, especially from Laura Roslin, basically saying, like, you need to commit. You need to assassinate this yeah. person. It brought real darkness out and a little bit of fascistic inclinations on their own part. And Adama then tells Starbuck to do it. And Starbuck is willing to. So what did you think about their whole way of dealing with it? And I guess Cathane's Kane's kind of heartless and methodical nature. She's almost Cylon like in her approach. Yeah. As you know, I, I mean, I love what you say about Kane. She's decisive in her lack of humanity. She's decisive in her brutality and how, you know, it flies in the face of really Adama's approach. And it really brings out, it really draws to your attention Adama's approach and how different those two approaches are. And the tension really mounts, of course, it's important to note that Commander Adama's outranked by the Admiral, by Admiral Kane. So there's only so much he could do because of that military infrastructure that's still, you know, that they're still beholden to. I love the point, first of all, of Fisk and Ty and sort of the exposition. I kind of got that after the episodes were done. I was like, yeah, they really use that to, you know, sort of spell out what the Pegasus, you know, how the Pegasus got to that point, how they survived and how they basically just completely destroyed their own fleet. They had a fleet just like Galactica did, but they took it apart for the personnel and for the and for the tech, for the parts and basically and basically destroyed and killed everybody else that weren't useful enough that weren't a grade to them whether it was equipment or people so so good besides just seeing how they interrogate how they torture how they rape the cylons just a completely 
different approach and how that, again, how that sort of animosity and how that conflict just quickly came into play insofar as, as you said, wanting to, you know, basically both commanders commanding their p- people to assassinate each other, which was really, I mean, really, you're like, what, you know, you're really left to think like over that, the arc of those three episodes, like, wow, how is this going to possibly play out? There's no way these two different parties could get along. There's just no way their approach is too different. You know, they're just way too, they're way too dissimilar. So I really loved that. And, you know, with the, with Admiral Kane, I was sorry, I was sorry to see her go, but it really spelled out so much for, first of all, the Pegasus becomes part of the fleet, the Galacticus fleet. And of course, Adama is promoted via President Rosalind to Admiral. So he goes from commander to Admiral now that he has more than one ship in his jurisdiction. But I, I just, it's so, you know, you're really rooting, you really like Kane. And even though she's so brutal, you do, there is an understanding there. It's like, this is the, the Cylons are their enemy. You know, there's not going to be, and you know, I love what you say about it really sort of spells out that 9-11 or post 9-11 period of the right versus the left and how that's sort of, you know, that's sort of supposed to be something represented. Yeah, and Guantanamo that. Bay and... Um, right, exactly. You know, yeah, and that all that thing. as well. You know, it really, and a lot of the stuff that we'll talk about, you know, really spells out stuff for, you know, mirrors the real life things that it's speaking to. But yeah, Kane was really was really a treat, and Fisk, and every everybody else we'll talk about later in a later episode. Everybody else that came out of the Pegasus, the Pegasus arc, and I love like little details like how the Viper pilots under Kane were like hash marking their their kills and stuff like that, and how there's such a disparity between the two approaches, and it makes you realize that the initial fleet that we're following, the Galactica, the the initial characters are really kind of doing it the right way with the most humanity. And it's not until you meet the other side that you realize that, you know, that it really gets spelled out, that it really comes out in the wash. So it was really, I mean, that was really, really a lot of fun. I was really, again, I was really kind of sorry to see that they couldn't come to terms and that Kane didn't survive. I mean, I liked even Madam President, even Rosalind sort of being the mediator between the two and sort of trying to broker some sort of peace but you knew, you knew pretty quickly knew it wasn't going to be possible with these two. They were just too diametrically opposed in their approaches that, you know, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to work out. But it, it, it makes me realize also like what could be in store for future seasons. Is this going to happen again? Where, you know, I guess there were initially there was a battleship for every one of the colonies, right? So initially there were a dozen, right? I, don't, I think there's more than that. How many? Oh, there was initially even how many battle stars? were there i'm looking it up in real time because i think they said it's like 70 years so, oh, 120 battle oh, stars there's that many yeah wow they, they built approximately two. 120 battle stars wow so there's only yeah. two left yeah that's amazing. and so yeah so and then there are obviously a bunch of other classes of ship as, as well right i wanted to i'm glad well i didn't want to talk very much more about it but i'm glad that you brought up lieutenant thorn their their interrogator interesting character and yeah, they openly are raping and torturing this number six. And it makes you wonder how much Kane knew and didn't. And he says, I think, um, and I, I have it written down here. You can't rape a machine. Uh, that's the 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 quote when they're they're almost flabbergasted that they would say anything at all to them. Like, what are you talking about? Right. Like, why human. are you protecting them type of thing? Right. So 
I, and I like the the idea of getting personnel like civilian personnel and how they go into that just a little bit, especially with Commander Adama on the deck with uh, the chief that they get from another ship who's basically a civilian engineer. Yes. Very interesting. They can tell just by the way he doesn't really know what's going on and all of that. I I really liked that as well. It, it We get more into that in Razor and we can we can talk more about that then. That's why I don't want to get too much into it now. But needless to say, I think they had a ship of or a fleet of 15 ships. And I agree with you that Kane is much more gray than she seems. The question just has to be asked. I mean, uh, the torture and rape and all that aside, I mean, that's sinister no matter what. I think we can all agree. But in the main, her aggressiveness towards the Cylons, their attack, you know, they're surprised to Adam is surprised to learn that they are seeking out and attacking the Cylons, which the Cylons are not. And that they found the fleet because the Cylons have been following them, Adama's fleet. So they look weak when they're found because they're actually Kane is actually tracking the very Cylons and hitting them while they're chasing Adama. And so I think it puts them in a in a softer position. But it does bring up the question of like hot and cold, like you have to ask the question, is Kane's and her, her ship too much? Certainly. But you also have to ask the question, and this does come up in, in the mixing of the two fleets and all of that is like, is the other side too soft? Like, is the other side has the other side just been running and and fleeing too much? And I think that 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 raises a, a pretty interesting question. We hear a lot about a ship called the Scylla or whatever that where Kane apparently murdered a bunch of people that wouldn't come like the families of all of the people yes. that that wouldn't come. It's, it's pretty brutal. So. But at the same time, she's so interesting. I love I, I said it to you. I love that she wears a sidearm. I think it's so cool. You don't see the officers on Galactica doing that. All of her officers do that. So it's just like a visual cue as well as to the way they kind of roll. And and I want to ask you about this next. The thing I think is most interesting about Kane and what I think is said about her leaving so quickly. And there's other characters that I think are interesting that leave quickly as well. But she has a connection to Starbuck. And I really liked watching it flow out of their interactions with each other. They have these interesting correspondences that are very meta where she's talking about like, don't hesitate. You know, she's telling Starbuck, don't hesitate when she's on her secret mission. But Starbuck's thinking about it through the eyes of what Adama is telling her to do. And so it becomes this very meta and complicated situation where she actually does like Admiral Kane. And so I'm wondering what you think about their particular relationship. It, I, I, I liked that dynamic. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. I think, you know, obviously Kane sees something in the younger Starbuck of herself. You know, that maverick, more rebellious, uh, maybe more a little, you know, more aggressive. I, lo- I love what you said, the point about sort of the warlike nature and the aggressiveness, even down to the physicality, for instance, you know, having guns where the officers on the Galactica didn't have guns. And also just not seeming to display any compassion for the Cylons, but also no sort of feeling of wanting to understand, wanting to understand the science, wanting to understand their foe at all. Just an all out, just a Cylon-like almost nature of just wanting to destroy their enemy in in Kane and her and her troop, which is really interesting because it is ironic that, you know, Kane and Adama they're doing the same thing at its core. They're just fighting their enemy. They're looking for a way to survive. They're looking for a way to preserve humanity. And they're looking for a way to successfully win against their opponent, but doing it in much different ways. I love the thing with Kara, with Thrace, sort of 
led to believe that she's going to be some sort of protege to Kane or that she's being pulled from both sides. And you're wondering where it's going to land. Now, it turns out that Kara's loyalty is really down is, is to Adama, but there is some sort of relationship that's blossoming there between the two women. And it was really an interesting, really an interesting arc. It was also interesting to see that loyalty play out where Kara was apparently going to assassinate Kane as much as she sort of liked her, understood her. If Adama wanted her to pull the trigger, then she, you know, seemingly she would have. But I like that. I like the relationship. I love the fact that you could see maybe even in the Starbuck character that maybe she could become another Kane when she got a little older, if she kind of went through the, you know, the admiralty or the, you know, the officership and got to that point that she could be another one like that. You could understand uh, Starbuck becoming someone of that nature. You could understand her leading in the way that Kane leads, which is different because she's kind of under the, you know, the tutelage of Adama. So she has sort of both sides. I, I think it was a great, I think it ended up being a great sort of arc over season two for, the Starbuck character, and we'll talk about her more. But yeah, I loved, you know, I loved seeing Kane's influence on everybody. You know, whether it was Adama, was President Rosalind, Lee, Starbuck, her own, you know, obviously we talked about Fisk. And, you know, just sort of seeing how it seemed like they respected her, but a lot of them also, she seemed to be ruling from a place of fear. You know, it's almost like a Bronx tale, you know, what's better to be loved or feared type of thing, where it's Adama is loved. And she's feared, you know, she's much more of a gangster than Adama is super, Certainly. super interesting character. I'm glad that we're going to get to see more of her in another, you know, in that, that razor thing, because that's now she plays in that too. Is it her proper or is it yeah, a younger yeah. version of her? Yeah. It's Michelle Forbes and it's, it's her so because she, it's not, she, she's not very much younger. It's after the attack. So great in the part. It's only, it's just kind of parallel, I think, to events in the show that okay. we've already seen. Okay just from their perspective and what was happening with them. So, yeah, we'll get into all of that. Another interesting thing that happens during the Kane arc is that we finally get some information about the Cylons, specifically that when they are too far from their home planet, that they cannot resurrect. And so they have this resurrection ship that is protected by base stars. And we finally get a little bit of what's going on with these guys as far as how they interact. And later on, we see both the number six and number eight revive in a resurrection ship and how that all works. I'm wondering what you think about this particular aspect of it. And if it leaves you hungry to know even more, because there is so much more to learn about the Cylons and you will. But this is they're finally. And I think the thing that they do really well in this show, maybe even a little too slowly for my taste, is they just peel the curtain back on the Cylons just very, very, very slowly and actually give you much more information about the humanoid Cylons, which are inherently less interesting, I think, than the growing like who's controlling them and who is their leadership and all that. We don't know anything about that yet. But what did you think about kind of getting a little bit more into the Cylons specifically? I'm curious about the resurrection ship and the destruction of it and making death permanent and Mm. how that plays into the episode Scar, which is one of the great episodes, I think, in the season. So, yeah, talk to me about all that. I love the resurrection ship thing. I think it's re- it was really interesting. You're right. The Cylon sort of tech and explanation is very slowly teased out over the entirety of the show so far, but especially over season two. We get more and more, but they are very specific and they seem very methodical about 
what we know when we know it and sort of, you know, very thoughtfully pacing that out. The resurrection ship thing was interesting because, you know, it sort of turns out to be this on-location ship for basically taking the Cylon, on, you know, the Cylon consciousness and implanting it into a new body. So taking it from one, when a Cylon dies, taking that consciousness, putting it into a new body, that's the place where they do it. So along with the Raiders and along with the base stars, those could be, those could jump, they're, they're part of a fleet. And on location, they could do this on the fly to create, I guess, new warriors, essentially, or new personnel, at least. Very, very interesting. And makes us re and, you know, just speaks to that sort of robotic production line factory like nature of the Cylons that it's interesting to me, like during the course of the season, especially with the Sharon Boomer arc, that you're like, well, the Cylons sort of do show a lot of humanity and there's a lot of things going on. There's a human Cylon sort of relationship that leads to the birth of the first, you know, human slash Cylon child. And maybe these things are a little more human than they're giving credit for. But then you see something like this, which is like basically an intergalactic factory where they're created again. And it reminds you how robotic it really is and what the humans are dealing with. It's not, you know, the humans are wrestling with this thing of sort of surviving and not becoming endangered or extinct where the Cylons are just created. So it really ramps up the danger and the tension for me because they could just create personnel on the fly. You know, it's how, how do you possibly fight this thing? You know, how do you, it's, it seems almost why even bother because they're up against these enormous odds. So that was really cool. And I love also the thing with Kara in the stealth fighter and the blackbird, you know, going on that mission to get those picks to get you know to go behind enemy lines and get the picks of that of that resurrection ship and that's where that whole mutual respect blossoms between Kane and Starbuck and all that kind of stuff so that arc was really really interesting also for you know just for Starbucks fearlessness you know she or slash craziness whatever but that was really i mean that was really cool that was a really cool thing to see creepy you know, we thought we talked about the base stars being creepy, but those things are really creepy. The way they look, the way they're engineered, the way they're protected, everything about it was pretty was pretty cool. It was a pretty cool surprise to see that, too. We also see for the first time, although we'll see much more of this. Um, I don't think we see it anymore in the season, but we see a Sharon model interface with a ship the way the human Cylons do. That and awesome. that there's something more to their human nature. Obviously, they're more cybernetic. And so, yeah, she shoves the cable into her arm or whatever, like cuts her arm open and shoves it in and jumps the, the ship, I think, that way. And it's it's like a blind jump they do. And it's it's very cool. I agree that we see a little bit more texture with the the Cylons here. I think the resurrection ship is so interestingly symbolic because it adds the element of fear into the Cylons that they otherwise wouldn't have. We don't know how distant they are from their home planet. We don't even really know what their numbers are. And we're starting to learn towards the end of the season, obviously, that there is a division amongst them and a civil war even brewing amongst the Cylons about how they want to deal with the humans. So I love that at that point, once the resurrection ship is destroyed, the insertion of permanence just completely and utterly changes the game. And, and it feels good because the humans have won a significant victory. Now, every one of them they kill will not resurrect. Their conscience will and their memories will beam out 
to nothing because they are too far and too distant from other places where they can be revived. So I loved that they got into that. It's jumping ahead, but I'm curious what you thought of watching them revive and the the process of life and death and how how clever I personally think it is that they bring in because I remember wondering when I watched the miniseries, I'm like, what happens to the number six that died from the bomb right when she protected when she protected Gaius and I always assumed that at some point that's what happened Gaius survived somehow he has this consciousness her she that that six is with him but it's interesting to think like she revived still in another body right and Valeri when she was killed by Callie dies and comes back so what did you think about seeing those specific characters come back and then the way it bends the arc of the Cylons away from this complete and total destruction of this idea that they need to annihilate all of them. Yeah, it's really it was really interesting. Probably the deepest part of season two for me in, in trying to just understand how it works and also sort of the inherent humanity in it where they kind of could come back. Their subconscious or unconscious could be implanted into a new body and how they sort of wrestle with that and have to kind of relearn and it also seems there's something mysterious there, too, where it seems like the different iterations are beholden to different personalities as well, which is very mysterious, too. Like, there could be a Sharon who's much more militaristic and bloodthirsty and a Sharon who's much more compassionate for humanity, too, which I'm maybe in the throes of still understanding that fully, but very interesting to me in that, you know, even though it's sort of this robotic thing where it's like you're... You're basically your mind or your being is going to be implanted into a new shell each time. It does seem to be different each time, even though even them getting used to their new bodies, even though their bodies are supposed to be complete and utter replica replicas of the of the past body that they sort of take time to get sort of ramp up and get used to and get acclimated to this new shell. Very, very interesting. There's a lot to think about there, almost like that whole thing with Boomer on the planet, li- living in her apartment and listening to the loud music and almost like, almost like a rebellious teenager or something. You know, it felt very strange to me. Like, okay, this almost seems to be acting out the way humans play out, you know, with the, you know, childhood and pr- maybe rebel- re- the rebellious teenage years and then blossoming into a, an adult, which I guess for Cylons would be a functioning Cylon agent, you know, and how it seems to be different for each of them too. I loved seeing the Cylons sort of coexisting on that planet where there was only, you know, you could only, there was, there were so many people, but they were only the 12 or whatever, eight so far that we right, saw already right. different models. That was really, really neat. But I, you know, I love it and I'm trying to fully understand it. And a lot of it is, I think that we just don't know everything yet, but it's very, it's very, very interesting to me. It makes me realize that there's a lot more to this than we understand by the end of season two. But the growing understanding is definitely compelling me to want to learn to learn more. It raises the question of what what is human? We, we talked about this earlier with the six being treated subhuman clearly on the Pegasus. And that. For instance, Valeri didn't know she was a Cylon. Right. She really didn't. So when she is revived, she's like, what the fuck? You know, that, and she asked, she remembers a life that never happened, really. It happened for a few years. She obviously was in love with um, T, uh, Chief Tyrrell and, and all of the rest. But it brings in this humanity where it's like, wow, the Cylons, the reason that number eight, especially, I think I think that's her number is so is so interesting is that and number six, I think, is a little bit less sympathetic, but still like this as well, is 
they the the very choices that the Cylons made have infuriated them and because they were used and while they're they keep calling them celebrities one of them does point out that celebrity doesn't make any sense we're basically a a machine race this not even communistic but just this hive basically right and how dare we act like we you the only memories we have are either implanted in us they didn't really happen and you tricked us and you had the audacity to revive us after we thought we were dead and i i love the way again that that they deal with that and about how you know when the resurrection ship is destroyed there's a model that wants to be killed because they think they'll finally go into oblivion and we don't get we talk about oblivion on the show sometimes cylons never feared that we don't really know about the centurions but we know for instance that even the raiders have resurrect and have brains and this brings me into a, an episode I did want to talk about, which and we brought it up earlier, which is Scar. I think this episode mm-hmm. is incredibly interesting, not only because it lets us see the pilots being pilots. Uh, we get a really interesting version of Kat and who I think is a really fascinating character and kind of her coming out of her shell. She's always been loud and braggadocious, but now she's got nuggets underneath her, just like she was a nugget with hot dog and whatever when she came on. And I love this idea because we knew we knew from the first season that that the centurions don't seem to have brains or, or any cybernetic or any um, biological function. But when we get when Kara goes or tries to, um, I guess, leave the planet she crashes on and uses the Raider, she realizes that in the first season she pulls out its brain. And so these things are alive and they, too, are dying and going back. And Boomer is the one that tells them like a ship like scar is full of rage he's died over and over again now his death is permanent but they're still kind of trying to hit them so what did you think about this episode i, I thought it was maybe one of the best of the season oh dude it was one, it was one of my favorites especially for that one off and sort of just going in one off direction for 45 50 minutes and just going and just exploring something that was that was fun i love but you reminded me in talking about just before we get on to that something that really compelled me and spoke to me in this season with the Cylons and just in trying to understand the enemy and trying to understand this thing that humanity is fighting against and everything. I loved you made this point of the whole Cylon thing. We know they're made by mankind, but the thing is so deep and so scientific, plus how much, you know, the Cylons just sort of ran with how they were created and evolved in their own way. It's become so drastic that we actually see that there are certain Cylons who don't even realize that they're Cylons. On the flip side, we see the adverse sort of emotional effects on humanity that the same notion has on a character like Chief, who's actually paranoid that maybe he's a Cylon. So it kind of puts you there. It kind of makes you realize, wow, can you imagine the horror of this situation on both sides that, you know, the, the humanity, for instance, is being infiltrated secretly by these Cylons that you would go to bed at night thinking like, holy shit, am I a Cylon? Like that's... That's where it gets like, oh, shit for me. Like, it's a, that's that's really great writing. And it really crosses over into horror in a way for me, too. You know, and so you see both sides sort of wrestling with that, with those sort of metaphysical questions. But for the Scar episode, yeah, man, I first of all, broad strokes, I love seeing like a story centered around the Cylon sort of Red Baron right there, Ace Pilot. That's just that's just fun. And that's something that reminds me we never got, for instance, in like 
the mainstream Star Wars universe. We never really got something centered around like a badass TIE fighter pilot. So that's really cool. And also thinking about, even with that, it would be interesting in a different way. But now we're thinking about, you know, we're dealing with robots, you know, man-made creations. So what makes this Red Baron character, this Scar character, so much better of a pilot than the other Cylons, for instance, when they're all robots? You know, it speaks to, again, sort of how much humanity is imparted in these things. And like you said, getting a proper vehicle for the character of Cat who really didn't count prior to this. And why I love that is it really gives Starbuck a proper adversary, a proper rival, not just in skill, but in bravado. You know, I think that over the arc of season two, Starbuck is a very, she's very interesting. They really take a lot of risks with the Starbuck character, I think, because, you know, we, t- we compared her to Han Solo in season one. And no matter what Han Solo does, whether it's part Harrison Ford or part of the writing or just that the fact that he's so charming and, you know, so um, charismatic that he's always likable. Even when he's being unlikable, he's likable. But the Thrace character could be really repugnant at times and really off-putting. And I think it's really interesting to make a protagonist that unlikable. And she is for, a, you know, really until the end of the season, I would say she's she kind of ebbs and flows and moves in and out of being pretty you know, pretty, pretty gross at certain times, very human. You know, she's imparted with a lot of humanity, a lot of gray, but I like giving her a proper rival because we find out that Apollo, for instance, Lee is so different that they're not really rivals, you know, how, you know, not just in skill, but in leadership and their humanity and their personalities. But I thought this was a really fun vehicle to have, you know, a proper rival for the Starbuck character and Kat and also kind of to explore the Cylons a little bit and how it works. And like you said, see things from the perspective of the pilots. I think, you know, the Vipers are one of my one of my favorite things. We talked about that in season one. And I don't think, you know, we talk about fun. We talk about adventure. We talk about that flavor of sci-fi, the dogfighting. There's not enough of it. There's just not enough of it, especially in season two. So it was nice for them to move back in towards the end. You're like, when are we going to see some Vipers? You know, five or six episodes before the end, we get that. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was super cool. Yeah, I'm pleased that you brought up, you know, Starbucks. Starbucks is a challenging character. I I was saying to Micah because she's watching it for the first time with me. uh, I'm like, "I, I actually like this character a lot more than I did watching it this time. I think I appreciate and respect this character a lot more. And where she comes from and how daring and bold and brave she is. And yeah, I, I think it's cool to have like a protagonist that's kind of on the edge. We don't often get that. Sometimes we do. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Dig, I want to bring in the audience here again and come in. My well, man. I want to talk about before we got we got to have the audience. Come on. Hugo Ribeiro wrote in us and said, I wanted my girlfriend to experience BSG since I loved it when it originally aired. So we just watched it together this year and she loved it. As I was rewatching the episodes, I got even more amazed when the interactions between Guy's Baltar and number six happened. They're just so good. That music sets the tone for the scenes perfectly, giving them a sense of mystery and conspiracy. The chemistry between the two is awesome. And to me, those scenes just showed how great of an actor James Callis is. When Guy's was talking with other characters and then six appeared and started to conspire and seduce him. To me, those are some of my favorite moments. Just great. So. We thank you for writing in, Hugo. We went into this a little bit last time, but I feel like they really ratcheted up in this season. And I got to give it up. I mean, I feel like it's easy. Obviously, Gaius is, is a villain, but 
I like James Callis's performance and I think Trisha Helfer is really good. She's I great. know you went into this on the last season, but she has more acting chops than I think almost anyone on the show, maybe outside of, you know, Edward James almost and Mary McDonald. I mean, she's certainly on that level. And I'm wondering what you think about the evolution of Gaius in number six here. And I'm fascinated by Gaius's arc. I think I wrote down in my notes, but I'd have to read it to the exact extent. But he saves he saves Laura's life and removes himself from having power immediately in order to exact it later on. And I think it's kind of a clever thing. And he does it. We, we still don't really know what the function of this number six is even in his life. And obviously she disappears for a little while when he starts to become enamored with the the tortured six model from the Pegasus. So what did you think about those two characters? Because we often only see them together. And I agree with Hugo. I love watching Trisha Helfer walk into a scene or it's just fun, like seeing, you know, because you you think about it from the actress's point of view and the actor's point of view, like she's on the set with all of these people and they have to pretend she's not there. And sometimes she's put into these scenes where you never see her with one of these people. And I loved that. Like there's a scene just as an example, we're not going to get into this, but there's a scene where Rosalind and Cottle are talking in her office. And I was like, this is so interesting. Like these characters never interact here. They interact elsewhere. So anyway, talk oh, to me. That's true. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about six and a little bit about uh, her relationship with Gaius and, and how that evolves throughout the season. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest mysteries, you're always trying to kind of define it and get, you know, get straight with it and understand it. First of all, yeah, James Callis is Gaius. He's awesome. He's one of the characters that, you know, really leaves you guessing which side he's going to land on, you know, very compelling. And he really did have a great arc. You see that sort of Gaius slash six interactions sort of propelled forward in this season. And, you know, six being the, you know, the ultimate manipulator and the way she dresses and the way she talks to him and trying to get under his skin and trying to, you know, bend him to her will apparently and all that. And him trying to resist until he really can't. And he's always won over. But it seemed like what really the interesting where just this sort of met a really interesting point for me in season two was when Gaius does save Madam President. He does save Rosalind with this sort of Cylon human embryo, the fetus, taking the blood and he finds out in the Petri dish that it eliminates the cancer cells and everything. He does save her. And afterwards feels vastly undervalued and underappreciated just when it seemed like he was maybe swinging towards the side of good. And that's what repels him in the other direction. So, again, speaking to the nature of the series, it's very understandable why he flies off in the other direction. Because Rosalind does sort of treat him badly afterwards. You know, she's very, you know, she really sort of seems to be taking him for granted. And that's what sort of propels him to want to pursue the president. That's one of the things that seems to want to, pers- you know, he seems to want to, he, he's drawn into the presidency himself and to, and to race against her for the position, which I thought was really interesting. I thought that was a really interesting way to take the character because you know he's not, you know, he's not a person of substance maybe like Rosalind is, but he's going to do it for his own reasons. He does it, in the face of saying that he's against the whole anti-abortion thing, but really it's for his own, you know, it's serving his own self-centered nature really, apparently, or at least for one of the reasons besides, I guess six getting under his skin and sort of 
moving him in that direction as well. But yeah, man, I mean, Trisha Helfer, she's so, she, knowing that she didn't really do a lot besides modeling, you know, she didn't do a lot of acting prior to the series. Like, she's really, really good. I would never have known that. She's great. She's really, and you you know, even, I mean, Exceptional Challenge should be doing the different iterations of the six characters as well, which we get to see, you know, we're kind of treated to during season two as well, which was a lot of fun. That's not an easy task. And then seeing later on, seeing towards the end of the season, I guess, the middle towards the end of the season, seeing the iteration, sort of seeing the roles reversed and sort of a fantasy Gaius haunting the, the one iteration of the six character. That was interesting. So now it gets turned around, which I thought was really a lot of fun. That was a great way to take it. And for me, leaving even more question marks. It's like, all right, now how is that working? So lots to find out in season three. I hear, unfortunately, I hear negative things about season three and season four, but I got to find out for myself. You know? Yeah, season three, I think, is the least popular. And I think I think it gets better. I mean, I, I don't I don't think I've seen really season three and four in a while. So I'm excited to get into it in the coming weeks as we get up to that up to that point. But. I think one of the interesting components about this season two to me was just kind of the discussion, which we hear in the first season, too. But this idea of love and that the Cylons, there's at least Cylon human models that feel like that is the missing component. And I think why they're so obsessed with Hera, the to be born half or, you know, at some point is born half human, half Cylon with no blood type and all the rest and basically the, the savior of the president herself. I wonder what you think about this notion of love and this, this notion of almost cross racial in this world, love where six thinks she loves Gaius when she does love Gaius, I guess Gaius loves six and the chief and Hilo love Sharon and none of it really makes much sense. It, it almost like we, we often think in other words of love as like a uniquely human thing and it is, but there's this other group of conscious beings that are trying to grapple with what it means and if they can do it. And, and it brings them to the point of wondering if the entire genocidal revenge mission that they went on was just a massive error. And it's almost quaint when they talk about it. Cause it's like, are you kidding? It's done. Like you, you, you did it. It's done. Like, you no, know, Going back, in fact, we hear from Dana Beers, who we'll talk about in a little while, that the attack went so well because of number six uh, uh, manipulating Gaius that it's even their wildest and best projections didn't see them succeeding this well. So what do you think about this component of love and this mystery around it this season? You know, it speaks to me as some of the best sci-fi I've seen. And you think about space opera, right, which Battlestar is one of the emblematic space operas. You got to have the love got to have the love triangle and you know sort sort of redefining love between aliens in this case you know a lot of things like macross for instance they, they explore love between humanity and alien races in this case it's humanity and a robotic race but it is interesting because it seems to be saying or you could read into it that if something is human enough if it has enough human-like qualities or human-like potential then Humanity could love that thing and vice versa, which is really interesting. Not to even speak of also the complication of the love triangle, which is a big thing in battle, space opera in general, but Battlestar Galactica specifically. You know, if you think about, you know, D, Lee, Starbuck, D, Lee, Billy, Six, Gaius, 
whoever, you know, whoever else. Everything, there seems to be love triangles that play everywhere you look. And that complicates things as well. You know, Hilo, Chief, and Sharon. You know, the, there's, a, there's so many, there's so much of that going on. And it is a compelling thing, especially because it seems, I, I mean, it speaks to something real too. I think if Cylons were real, if we could think of modern 2021, whatever, you know, um, here on Earth, Virginia, Pennsylvania, anywhere on the planet, there were Cylons here and they displayed the humanity that Cylons do in the show. I think you would have that. I think you could see that, you know, they're human on the surface, emotionally, not only physically, but emotionally, mentally, their thought processes, everything, you know? So it's a really compelling sort of, and one of the major parts of the show, you know, that they anchor a lot of the story on. And I think that speaks to, you know, a big part of the reality of the show. And one of those things that kind of makes you think for yourself, like, yeah, that's really, that's a compelling thing. And it takes it out of sci-fi and just makes it grounded and realistic. You know, and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me too, Kyle, like they do this half human, half Cylon baby character, knowing that it's possible now, what are they going to do with that, you know, in the series now that we know it's possible now that we know what's happened, the sort of horrific nature of the whole thing of pretending the baby died and then taking it away because you're afraid what the Cylons are going to do in pursuit of that, you know, in pursuit of that baby. And you know, the nature of the humans sort of wanting to fight by number and saying, okay, like if we're going to stand a chance in this conflict, in this world, we have to outlaw abortion. You know, no human child can be, can be killed. Everyone is valuable. Every, we have to bolster our numbers basically. So there's so much, you know, that centers around that question of love and, you know, loyalty is certainly a big theme in the show too. And it's, it's interesting to me. It's interesting to, to, it's going to be interesting for me to see, you know, every, all the information I'm given now, it seems to me that the Cylons and the humans could probably get along if they could put, just, just put their differences aside. It seems to be that much humanity at play with the Cylons. And really, what are they really not knowing what the Cylons are after specifically? Like why this overwhelming notion of just wanting to destroy humanity you know why how come you know and especially when you see that the humans could be compassionate and you know again the, that plays into back into the cane thing again where it was like a part part of the of humanity wasn't you know they had the same idea as you they wanted to wipe out their enemy you know point blank that's it no questions asked so there's a, there's there's just so much i mean how many seasons are there in total four or five four there's it's four. four okay so we're halfway through so there's yeah, there's uh, not quite because the f- first season, I think, is a little truncated. But yeah, almost because the it's 20. I think it's like 10, 20, 20, 20 or something like that. Right. OK, so, so it's 20. There's, like there's Plus 40 the, more episodes. Right. Gotcha. And yeah, sure. There's a lot more to go over. So, Dig, you asked about or you talked about this um, in, in our conversation with love about the Cylons mission. And it came to me, even though they have a plan in quotes. That such a genocidal plan seems to have no purpose and is almost it speaks to the robotic nature of the Cylons inherently. This is a plan that seems to have come out of, at least from our perspective, a machine, right? Like a computer simulation. And it's just like war games, like win or lose. We we can get our numbers together and 
and go back and execute these people, basically. And we know that there's much more ethereal and religious components to this as well. We learn that the Cylons won't kill themselves, for instance. And we hear more about the fact that they are indeed monotheistic, which is a far cry from the polytheism that runs through the colonist society. What do you think the humans, I guess, should do in this situation? Because we, we see it from Cain and Adama. Cain is attacking Adama's kind of running. I just wonder like what you think the solution would be. We see at the end and we could talk about it that the Cylons basically subjugate the humans and and are kind of in control of them in, in at least some of them now on the surface of this planet that they found. And I wonder what you think the Cylons goal really is and what how the humans should fight back, because my personal opinion, and I know it's easy to say, it's always easy to say in these situations. We always say it in the real world, too, right? Like when the when a bunch of Syrians started flowing into Europe because of the Syrian civil war, it's easy to say, like, I would stay and fight, but I don't I didn't have you know my entire city destroyed and have nothing left at all. So I'm not going to necessarily judge that. My stance here, though, with that bravado in mind is there's no way I would subjugate myself to the silence. I would have a much more Anders like philosophy of like, I'm probably going to die and I'm going to take out as many of these things as possible. So, so how would you react? You think in this situation and what do you think the Cylons goal is? It clearly, they clearly do have one, but now it's, it's diverging. Yeah. It's really interesting. You put yourself in that Admiral's chair, right? It's like, I could understand if we're just breaking it down to Adama's approach and Kane's approach, I can understand both approaches to me. First of all, the Cylons are so utterly mysterious. Humanity doesn't really know that much. They know that they, they created the Cylons. They know the Cylons came back empowered and they destroyed most of humanity and they're on the run. It seems like humankind doesn't know a lot. So the approach of running while you try to learn more makes sense in that regard. In other words, not to confront your enemy head on in this case, because you really don't know fully at least what you're dealing with. So running while you try to gain some sort of understanding makes sense. It also has a lot of inherent danger in that because while you're running, you could be utterly destroyed, right? If you're not fighting back, then you're not creating any obstacle for your enemy. And there's an inherent danger in that. Whereas Kane's sort of fighting brutality head on with brutality seems reckless in a way, because there's no way Kane's you know, sort of fleet or, you know, Kane's officers, Kane's crew she's commanding could understand that much more than the Galacticas. So she just chooses to keep the enemy on their toes, you know, with, with force. Kane, I think it's also important to say the Pegasus is a lot stronger than the Galactica. It's a, it's a more contemporary ship. It has more firepower. I don't, I don't know how much larger it is, but it's a, it's, it's a, Kane commands a better fighting force than the Galactica does. So there's also that important dichotomy to to note so you could kind of you're kind of sympathetic to both approaches maybe the best approach given the knowledge that we have coming out of season two is to sort of do you know we know where it ends obviously it doesn't end on a, on a great note for humanity but you know maybe the best approach would have been to sort of take both approaches you know run gain some sort of understanding when you can refuel reload and then attack when you can and they do like you said you know they scored a big hit you know they scored a big win with destroying the resurrection ship for instance but so you see humanity sort of take you know take a couple of battles but it seems like they're still you know they're still fighting this evasive you know this evasive on this evasive front where they're where they're mostly running 
And it is interesting to me what the Cylons want. It's like, again, they're such a mysterious entity. It does almost seem like if you're asking me coming out of season two, it does almost seem to still be beholden to some sort of religious belief. You know, something that they, they, they believe that the enemy is humankind and they need to be destroyed. That whether it's that they believe humankind is evil or, uh, you know, that they're a blight on the universe, there's some sort of virus, whatever it is, they seem to have, they seem to be compelled to destroy humanity, no questions asked. No, it's, there seems to be blips on the radar of certain Cylons, but it seems like the majority of the Cylons still believe that the humans are the enemy and that they need to be destroyed. It's those little pockets, it's those little exceptions on both sides that are probably the most interesting to me at this point. You know, those Cylons that are sort of having second thoughts and the humans that are the Cylon sympathizers. You know, we see little pockets of humans that, you know, are sympathetic to the Cylon cause. That's interesting to me and, again, very re- very realistic to me. And you could also see, of course, all the all the plays, if you think of, like, 2005, 2006 era planet Earth. There's a lot of mirroring of what's going on in real life compared to what's going on in, in outer space with the Cylons versus versus humanity, certainly. I was you had brought up um, Anders earlier and I brought and I talked about him in passing. We should we should go back and discuss this as sure. well, because the, the season kind of does begin with this. I don't think it's the most interesting arc, but I think it's really cool. We find that there's this team of pro sports players that ha- in a game called Pyramid that has been holding out. And I really love that. I think that's fucking hysterical, actually. I think that is a really cool thing. They're basically in the mountains training when this all goes down so the Cylons don't know they're there so it's literally this complete professional sports team and Kara kind of ingratiates herself into this group after realizing that they're kind of conducting these you know terroristic hit and run I mean in a good way I think it's good terrorism since they're fighting the oppressor but in the science fiction world of course but we see a little bit of the humanity here too when we see Starbuck fall for someone truly fall for someone in Anders. What do you think about that whole route? I, I felt like when I was watching it, I thought a lot about you with Anders because I feel like you would have liked the whole pyramid angle. I, I Not the game itself. We see them play it a little bit, but just this very clever idea of this sports team kind of fighting as a resistance band. Seems like something that you and I would enjoy. Yeah, it was cool. It was a great idea. I love and I love sort of starting the season off, you know, taking a break from outer space, not with just the pocket of, you know, Chief and um, Crashdown sort of fighting against you know, sort of a hold up on that planet after crashing there. But this whole thing with this, these athletes turned militia forming this pocket of resistance down on, on Caprica and opposing, you know, the Cylon contingent on that planet was really cool. Reminded me a lot of, well, you know, they're holed up, they're in the woods, they're in the mountains or whatever. The, um, God, my, my mind is going blank for a second. The, the zombie series. On, uh, oh, Walking Dead. It reminded me so much of The Walking Dead, where they're holed mm. up. You know, the people are holed up in the prison in that world. They're holed up right, in right. this high school, you know, this abandoned high school that they're using as their facility to uh, sort of live and to give them shelter and give them give them a place to stay where they're fighting these, fighting these Cylons. It was really interesting. And also to see Starbuck enter into a relationship that seems to go past the sex. You know, she has, you know, she get basically Starbuck gets involved. She's a little, little bit of a loose cannon. She gets involved with this one. She has this relationship with Lee, but it seems very surface level 
for her to fall for this Anders character. And you could, you could see that, you know, she's, she's fallen in love with this guy and promises to come back and rescue them. You know, and she, she, he wants her to stay, but she says, you know, she feels compelled to get back to her people, get back to the Galactica, but says, I'm going to come back. And um, they go quite a lot of episodes and never really get back there until the really to the end of the season. But it was really it was really fun. It was fun to see a little pocket of resistance fighting the Cylons sort of down on the surface of this planet and doing the best they can. And it leads to a lot of other arcs. It leads to, of course, Starbuck getting injured and getting getting captured by the Cylons and the whole arc with her being in the hospital with the uh, reproductive experiments and everything. The Simon character. Super, super fun stuff. I, you know, again, like, I think this this season gave us a lot. It gave us a lot of variety, and um, it gave us a lot of the Starbuck character too. You know, plenty to chew on with that character. Certainly. Did you think when she left that we would see Anders again? You know what? I I wasn't sure about that. I thought it would be a little reckless to just leave that character there. I wasn't sure. I have to say, I really wasn't sure. And I really, you know, you're almost not even sure that Starbuck really feels the way she does about that character because we haven't really seen that from her. You know, she loves to drink. She loves to gamble. She just has sex with dudes. Like, she has a very typically machismo-like that you usually you would see this, especially in fiction, from a male character. That's what's so interesting about her character. She had, you know, you rarely see a character, a female character like this in fiction, you know, where she's, she's very much, you know, the playboy, playgirl, I should say, in this case. Yep. You know, Definitely. so you're not even sure she's convinced. So it was nice to kind of bring that home and for the Anders character to survive and for them to be holed up on the planet when they are invaded by the Cylons at the very end, that cliffhanger that we get at season two. But yeah, I wasn't sure at the time. I, I really wasn't sure where they were going to go with that. Let's bring in some of these new characters. You would have brought up Simon, which we don't see too much of. But Austin wrote in and said, hi, guys, I really love how season two introduces a couple of new and interesting Cylons we had not seen before. The original cast is amazing, but adding more depth to it and further fleshing out the villains with characters like Brother Cavill and Deanna Beers is really interesting. I think it also does a great job of building to the epic finale of season two. What do you think of the new characters the season in, the season introduces and how they change the dynamic of the show? So it's interesting to see Lucy Lawless pop up, right? I remember the first time watching this. I'm like, oh, it's Lucy. Xena is a Cylon. So that's fun. But I like the She's I like her episode in, being introduced and doing that kind of raw documentary about the Galactica. And then I love seeing her at the end in the movie theater when you realize like she is a Cylon. Didn't see that. And yeah, I I remember not seeing that coming either. And then, of course, Brother Cavill, I think it's a little more telegraphed as being a Cylon when he starts talking to Chief. But I love that character. I think that character is bonkers good. Yeah, really. And I, I, I do love how the Cylons were wise enough to create and seemingly create a series of humanoid models that are very different from each other and have persistent personalities and gruffness or humor or sadness or levity or sexiness or whatever. So what did you think of some of these new characters? You know, again, really is interesting. And now the Lucy Lawless character too, what what does she play? Number eight? Is it number eight? I got to look. Yeah. I think maybe I'm getting the numbers wrong. I'll look it up. Yeah. She, she is another one that makes it to the end of the season. So I I shouldn't say it was just Anders, but for, for the most part, all the new characters that were introduced to are just, you know, they're just kind of fly by night. We don't get to we don't get to hold on to them by the end of season two. The Simon character, the doctor in the hospital, I remember, you know, you're you're really rooting for Starbuck at that point. She falls under fire, she's shot, she's captured. You know, you know you 
you don't know at the time, but she's captured apparently by the Cylons. And then she wakes up in that hospital to this benevolent doctor, soft-spoken, easygoing, seems very comforting. I, I remember really like, please, Simon, be a good guy type of thing. Turns out he's a Cylon and she's in some sort of Cylon, you know, facility where they're doing these human Cylon reproductive experiments. And they're going to, you know, they're going to basically experiment on her. And she gets wind of that cleverly and at, manages to escape, which is cool. But then, you know, with her, the Lucy Lawless character, you know, the journalist slash filmmaker who is, I was really fooled by that arc because here you think it's just this troublemaking human, maybe, you know, what would apparently be a left winger in that universe, right? And you think she's out to make the Admiralty and, you know, the officers and, and the Battlestar and, and the commanders look bad. And you think she's going to make a film that casts them in a negative light. And she ends up making this film, which is actually sort of realistic and, you know, casts them in a positive light. And you're like, all right, cool. But it turns out in all of that, that she's a Cylon. And the whole thing was like, you know, this, there was all this other subversion going on. So that was really cool. And of course we talked about Kane and her officers and how, you know, that, one thing we didn't know, I don't think, I think we forgot to mention during the whole Kane arc is that Chief and Hilo are captured and ordered to be killed because they, in rescuing Sharon from being tortured and raped, they inadvertently, they beat the guy, but they inadvertently murder the officer who's carrying that out. And they're ordered to be killed. And that's a whole nother thing in the arc that Adama finds himself tasked with is like, they're not, you know, this, this, you know, fellow officer or this admiral who ranks above me is not going to kill my men, two of my officers. So that was another interesting, really interesting thing. But all, you know, it's so funny to see all the players. Um, who's the actor who plays the current commander of the Pegasus in episode 17. Episode 17 is... Um, oh, yeah. That, uh, the yeah, let me look. Hand. The Captain's Hand. That's he's, uh, John he's Hurd. Great. Yeah, he's a great actor. There's, I mean, they really do a great job of casting in this show. People that really, again, like, don't see the B-movie side of sci-fi that take, that take the role seriously and really lend to... You know, they add to the success of the series. They add to the believability. They add to the writing. They take it to the next level they really make it they really make it good you know nobody just phones it in no there's nobody that phoned in a performance whether it was a bit player or you know a major player and it's besides, awesome to see john it's all i was gonna say it's just awesome to see john hurd pop up because oh, of course dude, he's the dad great, he's I mean, the dad in home alone in you know yeah. immediately you buy him in the role you know which is really cool then they the other thing they they do too and they seem to be structuring arcs around this you get to see more of characters like billy you get to see more of characters like Gaeta. You get to see more of characters like D. You know, they they sort of blend them in and make, you know, they rise them up, at least in an episodic fashion. You know, they'll come to the forefront and you'll get a little more about these other people rather than just Adama and Starbuck and Apollo and Madam President. You get some texture to, and Gaius and, you know, Six. You get some more of the other players that didn't rise to prominence in the first season. So that was something cool that they did in season two that seemed to be, you know, part of the trajectory of, you know, world building and character building. And that was cool. That was cool to see. I especially liked seeing D get up there and, you know, her, her relationship, her sort of sudden relationship, uh, physical relationship, 
romance, whatever you want to call it, with Lee seemed a little forced, but I get or sudden. But I guess, you know, that was part of the thing was like, you know, let's see if we could get D in here a little bit. Let's see if we could kind of rise her to the forefront for a bit, which I which I like. You might as well not, you know, they're great characters. You might as well kind of use them, you know? Yeah, totally. And per the Garner character, I I loved I wish they spent a little more time with him as well, just because it was fun for the first time to be exposed to another part of the ship that we don't really see. There are just certain components of the ship that we never really get exposed to. We see the Marines a little bit, but we don't really know about their structure or who leads them necessarily and right. who's who amongst them. I do like that we see them in plain clothes on um, at the bar in the um, and cloud cloud one or whatever they call that uh, or cloud nine, whatever they call that ship. Yeah, that was cool. And that was really cool. But I like that uh, John Hurd's character is a is referencing kind of the engineers and and the people in the in the pits, like keeping everything going. And I love the symbol of the the watch that he always held about how everything was like always regimented. And he was used to, as Lee says, working with machines when he's promoted to commander of that ship. What did you think about that exposure? I, I, lo- I it is his fault that the ship gets attacked. He falls for a tr- an obvious Cylon trap. I don't know what he was thinking, but I love the heroism of him going in and fixing the problem himself, understanding and diagnosing the problem. It's it's not quite as dramatic or sad as seeing Kane go, but it was like, why can't this character just stick around for a little while? I know. Just give us a little bit more of this. Well, I love that whole thing because it really that was one of the episodes that really subverted my expectations because you have this character, you know, he's a lead engineer promoted to commander of that ship, commander of the Pegasus. And he's sort of out of his league because what he knows is tech. He doesn't know people. He doesn't know strategy. You think that, you know, when Lee's like, at that point, he's promoted to major and he and Starbuck are both on the same page. Like, no, this is a Cylon trap. And the commander's like, you know, going against their, their sort of advice and saying, no, I disagree with you. He's not doing it because he's a coward. He's, he's doing it because that's what he really thinks, but he doesn't really know military he doesn't have any military jurisdiction or knowledge or you know knowledge of strategy like they do and you're thinking this guy's a coward and then what you see him do at the end he's able to delve into his area of expertise in order to save them and he turns out to be a hero which was i thought a really clever bit of writing you never see things that are that thoughtful where it's like it's just a character who thought he was doing the right thing in one way he was just out of his he was just out of his area of comfort, out of his area of jurisdiction. And he ends up being a hero in his own right, which I thought was really cool. I thought that was really, really thoughtful. And that sort of thoughtful storytelling and that sort of thoughtful writing really wants it compels us to see more of that character, you know. But they're also very clever about telling a great story and then getting that character out of the way almost like it would be an impediment on what's important. And I think that takes a sort of amount of courage too, especially when you see a successful bit of acting like that. You say, you must look at that and be like, all right, we could do a lot with this character. Like this, this, you know, even off the page from the page to the performance, like this is, this is even better than we anticipated. And you could see them being tempted to carry on something with that character or maybe make something more for that character than they initially thought they would. So, so, so to actually brush that character aside and concentrate on what the trajectory you, you know, initially, intended is you know that takes a sort of amount of courage you know and um commitment which is cool you know sure something else you had brought up earlier was and we we kind of glossed over to uh, it was when starbuck is 
in the hospital and is basically being experimented on. And there's that really creepy conversation with Simon when she's he's basically saying like that they need to reproduce and stuff. What do you think about the obsession with the Cylons have with reproduction? It seems like they're trying to will themselves into existence and they can't seem to do it. And you would wonder if they would just why not just embrace the fact that you can just create more of yourself or more models or whatever. What uh, what do you think of of that whole that baby farm and people being plugged into these machines and they're just the, the Cylons can't seem to figure it out. It's super interesting because it makes you think like, OK, the Cylons, they know they have this technology which seems advanced to humanity. Right. It's like they could just, you know, take they, they have this immortality where it's like the body is a shell. They basically take the the subconscious, put it in a new, that body expires or is murdered or is killed in some way, passes away, and then they could take that and put it in a new body. So essentially they never die. So you think they would be content with that sort of technology, but it seems like they're thinking like either we could take our race to the next level or even make a better Cylon. You know, what if we kind of cohabitate with people, with humankind, like, is that a possibility for us? So it seems like they're thinking about that. Like, they could they make even, like, the next echelon or uh, even more superior race of Cylon by coexisting with people, which is creepy. And they're sort of forcing it. And it also kind of makes you realize for how advanced they seem that they have questions, too. That they, you know, maybe they're just as fascinated in humans being their creators as humans are fascinated in and Cylons, and maybe, you know, think humans thinking Cylons are so advanced, maybe Cylons kind of think that of humans in a way, too. I think Dr. Cottle even says in, in one way, like, they had the, they could have done this any way they wanted. The reproductive system is exactly like humans. Why would they do that with all its inherent faults, you know? So there's something about that, too, where they almost put human physiology on, like, a pedestal where they don't even, it seems like they wouldn't have to do that. They can make it even better, which is interesting. So maybe the Cylons don't know as much as we think they know, or, you know, they don't know as much as man thinks they would know, given that there's this, you know, quote unquote, superior race, or have even gotten better than man intended. You know, they, they've somehow managed a way, even though they're robots, they managed their own evolution in a way too, but maybe that doesn't mean much. You know, they still have a lot of they still have questions just like people do, which is interesting. By the way, I, I had forgotten to answer the question for you and for the audience before about the number, the model number. So I, I do have that list. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I so Cavill is number one. Leo Bin is number two. Uh, De Beer or Deanna Beers is number three. Simon is number four. Doral is number five. We know number six. And then number eight is Sharon. Sharon. And there are others. OK, uh, we, we haven't learned we haven't learned about yet. OK. So, okay, so I wanted to ask you about this, too, about the idea of conflicting goals. And this all comes to a confluence, actually, at the end of this season. Simon Pusateri wrote into us and said, hey, c and I wanted to write in to see how each of you felt about the ending of this season. For me, the time jump and then occupation by the Cylons was an absolute jaw dropper. I remember being so shocked the first time I watched it years ago and feeling like I couldn't wait to start watching season three. Keep up the good work. It is surprising. And we'll talk about what you think is going to happen because I'm curious about that. I have a few what if questions for you. I know the answers to, but um, I'm curious as someone who's kind of caught in time right now, what you think about things. But before yeah. we get to that, yeah. what do you think about the conflicting? I mean, Gaius represents this in the election, obviously. And uh, what do you think about the conflict between finding Earth or just settling? 
where do you think you would have stood and what what do you think the arguments are for both? Because it really comes down to an almost religiosity. And I think people just being tired of living like they're living. They don't want to live on these ships anymore. Right. And you can understand that. So what did you think about that whole that whole arc and, and, and this total conflict where they really they need everyone on board, figuratively speaking, in order to find Earth? What um what do you think about those conflicting goals? I mean, it was interesting. I love having that sort of split between whatever's left of humanity. What is it at the end, like forty thousand or something? I love having that split be you know, be between the sort of sect that wants to continue to go in for the religion or the prophecy end of things, and then the other sect that says, you know, we found an Earth-like place. What's the difference? Let's just settle here. You know, they find a, a place that's seemingly Earth-like in every way. And they start to settle. And I love, well, first of all, I love the fact that Gaius goes in for the presidency and then, you know, the whole thing with the, um, you know, becoming president, even sort of flying in the face of the whole contingent who rigs the election and everything. And he still comes because they think it's so dangerous. Or Madam President thinks it's so dangerous with Colonel Ty's help and everything. They think it's so dangerous for him to be president that they're going to rig the entire thing and then they get found out. So Gaius gets his wish. He gets to be president anyway. And we could, we see he's completely unfit for the role. And so, you know, humanity seems to be in a bad spot under Gaius. And then sort of the two, you know, humanity being split in two as far as like what they want the end goal to be. Like, are they ready to just leave space and settle on this planet that's Earth-like? Or do they go in to, you know, continue to try to find earth and be beholden to this the religion that they were initially compelled to seek out the prophecy and everything. But I could see, I could see wanting to also the notion, very important, the notion that even Adama thinks like after whatever, what is whatever it is, like a year and a half that the Cylons, he believes that the Cylons kind of stop pursuing them for whatever reason. Like he thinks that that threat has abated. Right. And I think that's really interesting that, you know, so basically they're they're completely taken off guard because the Cylons, basically the terrorists, that terrorist sex set off that nuke. They blow up, I guess that's the luxury, they blow up cloud nine, I guess. And then as a result of that nuclear blast, that's how the Cylons find them, ironically, because they would they say they would have never found them there because of the soup or because they could never detect, you know, whatever the atmosphere was like there. So the Cylons track them via that terrorist attack. And that's how we leave it. You know, we leave it with the Cylon right. sort of the Cylon army, you know, amassing above the planet and that small pocket of resistance. Uh, Anders is sick, but I guess, you know, led by Starbuck saying like, all right, like, you know, we're going to do, we got to fight. You know what I mean? We got to, we got to run for the hills basically. And we're going to put up some, whatever kind of resistance we can. And that's how it, you know, the very compelling notion to end on because you think it's not looking good for mankind at this point. It's just not, no, you know, no, not at all. And I, I, I do love how much Laura flirts with totalitarianism. She she's not really, truly democratic. I don't think any of them really are. And we we, we talked about this a little bit in the last episode about Battlestar, but I feel like one of the most interesting things about the lore building in the in the 
in the uh, TV series is how it often suggests that the society in which they come from is not that liberal. And I don't mean like big L, like Democrat. You know, I mean, it's an it seems like a somewhat illiberal society in some ways. Right. Again, we learned in the first season that they were like books were banned, certain books where you couldn't read. And it's it's a really interesting thing. And so I don't think they have this truly American, like, let's say, democratic foundation, which was why I think the 9-11 parallels are so interesting, because you could say the same thing about some of the the things that were being said and done post 9-11 as well. But I really dig that they they get more into the granular stuff that makes the Cylons operate and what their goal might be. And I, and I kind of wanted to ask you that as someone who doesn't know what happens next. I, there are two questions I really wanted to ask you. And there are other things I want to explore as well. But in terms of this prognostication, let's say I'm curious who, if any other person, do you think is a Cylon? And what do you think will have like, what do you think will end up happening as a result? I'm just curious where your mind is at right now. It's really interesting. That's one of the main things you're thinking throughout the series as we get different Cylons revealed to us. And we see the whole arc with Chief, you know, paranoid that he's a Cylon and everything. It's like, who who else could be a Cylon and which characters would pose the greatest danger for humanity if they were a Cylon. Super interesting. First of all, I have to say, the Madam President arc over the season was really, really wonderful because I really thought that she was going to die. Seemed like the cancer was going to get the better of her. She was on her death, all but on her deathbed. And then she comes around. There's so much gray with the character. We know she's good. We know the relationship that's blossoming between her and Adama, that mutual respect and everything. But the fact that she orders Kane's assassination, she rigs an election, she outlaws abortion. There are, you make great points. Like she's a, she's a character who really, she's, it's not, it's not all good. You know, it's, it's a little bit of her way or the highway. You know, she sees that, I think her intentions are good, but she's going to do it by any means necessary. Even if she has to be talked down the ledge by characters like Adama, which is very, makes her a very interesting character. I mean, you, you think about the season, even Billy go in the beginning of the season goes against her and says, I can't, I love, I, I love you, but I can't go along with what you're doing here. You know, when she breaks off with Adama and sort of takes a third of the fleet with her, like it's a really interesting arc. You know, she's, she's got from the beginning of the season, we know that she's got a, a finite time to live. So that's really interesting. I really can't say I know where it's going into season three. It's really interesting for me. We know that the main characters are our head protagonists are going to form, form up some sort of re, of resistance, right? Who is it? It's, it's Hilo, it's chief, it's Starbuck. It's the, you know, all the main players. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be interesting, but it seems like going into season three, they're really up against, you know, the fleet slash humanity is really up against pretty overwhelming odds and coming in also completely blindsided because they really, as we said, we really thought they really thought they were out of the woods. I don't know really why they thought that, but I guess it was just the well, longevity because, of that yeah, period. The, they had never experienced a period of a year and a half of peace like that, or of not being, right. you know, perpetually pursued by this relentless enemy. So it's right. going to be really interesting, man. If I had to pick one, character who i suspect is a cylon at the time coming out you know who's interesting to me 
the Callie character. And I only say that because she was so, we know that she loves Chief. We know that, you know, we know she's loyal and all that. We didn't get a lot of the character during this season. So we don't really know a lot about Callie. The only reason I question that is because I'm not sure of her significance, but that would be an interesting one for me, the Callie character. Besides that, I'm really not sure. I can't ask you to guess because you already know if, if any you know, are. Yeah. It's it's always fun to just kind of see where people think things are going. And yeah, since you brought up and we've been talking a lot about Laura, I also wanted to kind of press you on what do you think about the kind of budding love of of Adama and Rosalind? I I really find some of their moments really cute and heartwarming and love this budding romance that kind of builds between them this season. It's cool. There's such a warmth between the two. And, you know, we know they they may have a different, slightly different approaches, slightly different personalities, but they both want the same thing. And I love if you look back to the beginning or the middle of season one, where it was like they were kind of um, they were kind of saddled with this woman who was coming out of education and she was going to be the president. She really wasn't appropriate for the role and what Adama thought of her and the lack of respect, that growing respect and admiration and that warmth. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the acting, you know, both actors just bringing it um, that, you know, that chemistry as well. And wondering, is this just sort of an affection for a working relationship and an affection blooming from that? Or is this a romance that's sort of, you know, brewing here? And I think I think you kind of get that a little bit. I think you sort of see that there's something going on beyond, you know, beyond the professional level, I think. There's some sort of romance brewing between the two, which makes sense. You know, it totally makes sense. I, I love almost in this. He he really he's got that like whispery, raspy, you almost want to see him as Batman <laughs> type of type of approach. <laughs> sure. And then she's got that warmth too and that sort of quirky nature and that personality. She's a little playful and she's got a new lease on life, you know, for being saved. Not very gratefully. But being saved by Gaius and then having the second lease on life, so it is interesting. I, I'm th- those are two of the characters who I'm looking forward to seeing the most. You know, especially coming into the season, not knowing if Adamo is even going to live. I mean, he comes. He, we come into the season. He's critically wounded. So you know, how is that going to go? And then not only that, but the Thai character. I think he's really interesting. Um, he's had a, he had a really cool arc. I think they could have done a little more with him. I love the exposition with the whole Kane thing where he's with the other XO and there, you know, he's sort of drawing that out of the other XO and everything. I love the arc where he's not just being sort of an obstacle and he's, he's not just sort of being pig headed. He helps chief secure the tech that he needs for the phantom, you know, the phantom fighter, the phantom viper, the blackbird. That was kind of cool. So we see Ty get a little more involved and we also see him double down on his loyalty to Adama, which I always think is really tough, right to the very end of the season, which I think is really, is really touching too. And how he really, you know, for as good as he is as an officer, he really wasn't capable of doing what Adama did when Adama could have been on his deathbed over the throes of the first few episodes of the season. So yeah. knowing that yeah, he's really a good see- compliment to Adama, but he's no Adama, yeah. you know. Yeah, we see him struggle a lot with leadership and going and visiting uh, Adama bedside, kind of lamenting the situations he finds himself in. He's obviously in a very toxic relationship with his mm. wife and 
And I think Ellen Ty is a really interesting character, too. And so it is fascinating to kind of watch him kind of get more ingratiated and you kind of root for him in a way because you know that he's not well liked. It is funny watching that. I think it's the first episode of the season where it's like flashbacks of them and they're they're supposed to be like younger, but they just look it looks so ridiculous, like how they tried to make them look younger. You know? And <laughs> that was it's almost crazy. Like, it, it was like comical, like laugh out loud, funny, that stuff. But uh, a few other things I wanted to ask you, Dave, before we wrap up and I throw it to you if there's anything sure. else you want to talk about. My favorite, one of my favorite scenes in the whole show is in the second season, and we haven't brought it up yet, which is when they use the arrow of Apollo. And I love this entire sequence of them following the scripture and seeing the places on COBOL that are discussed and that it requires people to die. And they're in like the meadow where everyone fled mm. and they're walking all along the trails and it's very mystical and it's very, it's, 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 it gets a giddy inside. It's really exciting. But when they put the arrow into the bow and they realize that they're standing on earth and the map to earth is above them and it's the stars that we, so it's literally how we see the stars right. from our perspective and they have to figure that out that's where earth is and they do that by figuring out one of the nebulas that they they re they recognize but i love that they finally work in like oh the 12 colonies are named after the original names of these constellations that people saw on earth and here is the map i think it is a very stunningly cool scene. I'm curious if you had any thoughts on that yeah, one. Yeah, I forgot all about that to be honest with you. Yeah, that was cool because it really gives it it gives it a grounded time and place in our universe. You know, it was one of those things where it almost seemed hokey going into it. It was like they're gonna get this relic and they're beholden to this monotheistic theistic philosophy and they're they they're it's almost like this Greek god thing. It almost seems ancient and almost seems kind of um, you know, this antiquated belief system but then when it plays into you know this whole thing drives home the reality even them going after the relic that whole thing seemed like all right all, all of a sudden there's this indiana jones type subplot i don't know exactly what's going on here it was all kind of a uh, shocking and confusing but that grounded it you know that was a whole thing and the thing was like okay now this kind of grounds it in our is this past present or future it almost gives it that star wars-esque thing of like when is this taking place in like a, a modern day contemporary human timeline and place? That's for me what I got out of it. You know, I was like, wow, wow. How is this? How is this going to tie in? And knowing that there's 40 episodes left, there's plenty of time to explain it, which is interesting. You know, so I mean, I think, yeah, for me, it was it was a really it was a really cool payoff, I think, in the whole thing, because I wasn't really thrilled with that whole with that whole thing and le learning what the, you know, what the humans, what the religions and the prophecy and the, the fortune. Oh, that's so interesting. The I, I think that, I think that shit's awesome. You that's like, like some that? of the best stuff. Well, because it, it does, you don't usually see, I always try to convince people to watch Battlestar and maybe I'm not doing it justice by descri describing it such like this, but I'm like, it's the religious aspect of it and the philo philosophical and spiritual aspect of the show that makes it so unique because you do not see that in science fiction. It's just, that's something maybe like you see that's like true. this reminds me a little bit of Dune and some other stuff where it just seems so gritty and real and almost overboard from even our own society. I mean, another example is when we learned that Adar was killing teachers, right? Like oh, we learned yeah. that 
that Laura was basically making deals with the teachers union who were basically looked at as terrorists and they were killed. That was crazy. I mean, this is a this is a different society right. than, than the one we're used to. It's Get like that. a and I do think that Laura is a is a totalitarian in a way. And it's not necessarily that it's bad because I don't know what we would do in this situation. That's why it's so fascinating to think about the philosophical questions of abortion, for instance. Like I am pro-choice. But in that situation, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Like, that seems to be actually incredibly stupid. I think that you and that's what it's so interesting when Gaius comes out and like and almost seems to defend the president before stabbing her in the back, like one moment later by announcing he's running for president. Yeah. He basically comes out and says, like, times have changed. We have to look at things differently. And and it's true. And so, like, yeah, you are pro-choice under the most ideal circumstances. But how dare we, like, try to snuff out a human life right now? Are you crazy? Right. You could could be totally sympathetic to that. Right. In that that circumstance. And so I just think, like, it's fun to kind of look at it through our own societal relativistic lens and compare and contrast. And, of course, we've talked a lot about 9-11, but just about the the general dichotomy between their world and ours and how um, it all goes through. And we see a few of these things and the different ways it vacillates. For instance, I really like the episode that's about the ex-military guy, Phelan, and the black market that he runs. Oh, that's great. And how, you know, it's on a ship called the Prometheus and all of this and how much power that people have economically and how the the in a perfect situation, it's doubtful that the government would let something like this happen. But they realize that they need this to lubricate the wheels of commerce and get things done and they just go and kill the leader and everyone i love when they when lee kills phelan because no one cares no and and i love when he's like it's done that's what he says like he's like it's done and everyone is kind of like relieved that it's over and they can just do their business but they don't have to have sex children you know they have children for sex slaves yeah they're trafficking kids right and those are things that are obviously never okay but you then you look at something like Lee is getting involved in a process with a prostitute. Yeah. It's like, well, this seems like it was legal back in their society, but also times have changed. Uh, you have to kind of look at things a little bit differently. So that's why when you see things like torture, slavery, rape, all those things, those are that's never OK. Right. But when you see things like switching from pro-choice to pro-life, like uh, Laura is kind of forced to or seeing Doc Cottle struggle with. The situation he's put in with the baby. Yes where they're hiding the baby and they fake the death and they make that Sharon go crazy and all that. Brutal. But you kind of understand in a normal circumstance that would be unthinkable. But the Cylons want that kid. So it's best for them to think that that kid is dead. Absolutely. And so you understand when you have like prostitutes and military guys and merchants and scumbags and some criminals and some it's just kind of the it's kind of the way it goes. Absolutely. And, um, Absolutely, dude. The yeah. black market, right? Like treating that like this is an inevitability. That was another thing that subverted my expectations. It was like, and another character, another point for the character of Rosalind where it's like she wanted to shut down the black market and the outcome was, no, the, the black market is a necessary evil. It's always going to exist. It's inevitable. The child trafficking was a bridge too far and we had to take care of that. But people are going to need medicine. They're going to want booze. They're going to want tobacco prostitution was also considered in that whole thing you know they're gonna want you know the exotic things like fresh fruit there's no there's no way to shut that down it's always going to exist so we might as well let it exist and develop whatever parameters we have to evolve it but you know that's another thing it's like in in this modern era we can't shut this down and that was another thing for lee's character like how 
how strong he is, what a great, you know, he went, he was a really interesting character, the Apollo character for me, because he went from being, we talked about this in season one, seeming like a fly boy, like a jock. We know he's kind of saddled with, you know, being the commander's son and having to live under that shadow, but we didn't get a lot from him, but he really blossomed into a, into a strong character in season two. By the time he's promoted to major and then he's promoted to commander at the end of the series, like, you know, it's like, you really, that character's really come full turn. You know, he became, he got comfortable in his own skin. He realized his value wasn't in being like Starbuck. It wasn't going to be in like bucking the system or being a maverick or being rebellious or flying in the face of his superiors. It was going to be his leadership skills and how instrumental he was going to be into their survival so he really grew for me as a character and also you know being you know seeing the whole thing with the prostitute seeing the whole thing of like him having gray areas too you know his humanity was on full display as well just like every other character but i really liked his arc over the season the black market thing you know how um useful he was and how courageous he was and just tracking that guy down and pursuing that whole thing to its end and Awesome. Just awesome. One of my favorite characters coming out of season two, I think. Yeah, I noticed that in our discussions over text that you seem to have taken to him, which is cool. And I like the the prostitute thing, especially because we we get a lot of exposition about his past and his regrets in, in his own love life. And I thought that that was pretty neat. It's it just gives that character a little more texture. We've kind of gotten that texture about Starbuck because of her love for Lee's deceased brother. So it's kind of cool to see the other side of the coin as well. Yeah. And I think the only other thing that as I just wanted to bring up really quick is I, I also really dug the episode about Saisha uh, Abinell, the the kind of ex- conspiracy theorist that tries to take over the bar oh, and get so good. and and because you can kind of understand like, oh, well, why are we collaborating with the Cylons? Why? How can we trust that this Sharon model is not going to activate? And she I don't know it's it's unclear to me I'd have to go back and watch like what they know like what the fleet knows about who killed or tried to kill Adama and uh all of that so I I just thought that that was a neat episode as well and again just dealing with all these social issues torture abortion religion election electioneering and I mean again Laura is a been flirting with fascism the entire time and tries to manipulate the election it it have and the military's in on this so it's cool to see that they're kind of dirty yeah they're not playing by the rules but you can't really play by the rules if they always i think they've kind of embraced as people that playing by the rules hasn't actually gotten them this far it was starbuck that like disappeared and went to uh caprica on her own remember like to get the arrow she stole the raider sure and all the all of the rest so it's there's a lot of examples of them bucking the trend or when there's like a little bit of a civil war between Lee and and uh, and his father. So there's a lot to say here. Is there anything Dagan, that we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about? No, you know, that that episode, at the bar, that sacrifice episode was really was really wonderful. First of all, the death of Billy. That was sad. Sad to see. Billy yeah, it was. Go. It is sad. And president yeah. sort of usher in a new assistant. Oh, I forget that character's name. But, you know, Lee almost dying at the hands of starbuck accidentally friendly fire right tory's the character by the way okay Tor- tory's the new assistant right yeah she's great yeah like she's D&D she's kind of yeah. whisked in right away and you're like who is this but then you remember billy billy got killed that whole right. thing in the bar the love triangle between billy and d and um lee and 
you know, Lee, a, a call to action for Lee. And really, you know, I, we talk about, you know, how morose the series could be, the violence, the terrorist attacks, the people dying, the bloodletting. It always seemed like somebody's bleeding out in one of the episodes. You got betrayal, dead babies. Like, it gets really heavy. But in this episode, you're really, you're really compelled to think, wow, are they going to kill off Lee after all this? Are they going to, you know, are they going to let this character die? Super crazy episode. But again, you could almost, part of you goes out, your, your sympathy goes out to the terrorists or the people hijacking or holding up that bar because that woman's husband was killed by a Cylon. So it was revenge, you know? So it's like the things that people are compelled to do in the name of love or revenge. And just the fact it smacks of realism to me for those human conflicts to s- still exist, even in the face of a larger enemy or a common enemy for people to still be infighting and, and, and disagreeing and those conflicts to be brewing even in the face of this war with this, you know, deadly enemy is really interesting. And I think they really did a great job in writing this this season. R- a lot of subvert- subverting of expectations, a lot of really thoughtful stuff. Everything seems connected. Even the fun one-off stories are connected in some way to the larger picture and just great character building, man. Really, really fun characters. I really hope it keeps going in a in an awesome direction. And you know what? They they seem to have a very Game of Thrones esque disregard for their characters. Yeah. Like anybody, sure. They definitely set the tone of any character could go in any time. And I gotta say, that's one of the big compelling points for me to keep going. Is like, who are they gonna kill off? You know, who are they gonna have the audacity or the courage to let go next? Um, it's scary. I'm a little nervous about it, to be honest with you. And what, let me ask you this. What yeah. are your, what are your questions about the Cylons? What do you need to know about them? Mm. Do you want to see their home planet? Do you I want do. to see more of their ships? Or Seeing their like home that? planet would be pretty compelling. I think that would be really cool. Yeah. And I just want to see what their end game is. You know, I just want to see why they're so bloodthirsty for for human lives and why they feel so compelled to destroy humanity and also in the same breath could they be there's the whisperings there's for me there's the faint whisperings that maybe they could be talked out of that or change their views um and seeing if that becomes part of the seeing if that becomes part of their protocol maybe even with you know humanity being fed up like up to their gills and running and maybe you know humanity kind of turns and on a more cane like approach and starts hunting and starts fighting and and is much more brutal in their approach while the cylons sort of take a knee and are like all right do we need to be you know is this conflict necessary it would be kind of cool to see it flip a little bit and see what that and see what that spells out that could be sure and i agree and I mean, that brings up the whole I mean, I assume Cain was named for Cain and Abel. I, I always kind of assume that that was the reference. And, you know, like one brother killing the other brother, one side doing things the different way than sure. the other one is. I, I, I feel that. like that was that was the reference. And I, it, it is interesting because you're going to learn a lot more about the Cylons. And I find what's most fascinating about them is their technology and all of that and the way they interact with things. And. I think in not, you know, not just the foreshadow things that you're also going to learn about what they were up to in between the original war and when they attacked again. And that's that's where shit gets really fun, like to me. And that's why 
I reject kind of these things where it's like season three and season four are like these big step up. I'm not so sure about that. Not if you're I'll, I'll I'll rejudge it now. It's been it's probably been 10 years since I've seen the last season. So um, I'm excited to get into all this day, but it's been fun. I know it's time consuming, but uh, I'm glad that you're giving it a chance and I hope you, you are enjoying it. I, I suspect you will continue to, but we'll see. We'll, yeah, it's we'll a really do good another time. we'll do another episode in a month or so and we'll 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 revisit season three this time. It's good stuff. And we're watching. I should note for you guys out there, we're watching it or I'm watching it on Peacock on the Peacock network, but I think it's available. You have to pay for it on YouTube. Um, I'm not sure where else, but Peacock yeah, it was, it was cool. on Netflix. It was on Netflix for many years. And then I think when Peacock or, and, or maybe it was a prime. And then when they, when Peacock came, obviously NBC owns it. So they, they took it. Yeah. And apparently there are, apparently there's a director's cut of the episode Pegasus, which I have never seen. Oh, and Peacock cool. doesn't have. And apparently there's also a director's cut of razor, which I have also never seen. Oh. And apparently Pegasus does not, or I'm, I'm sorry, apparently Peacock does not have those episodes. So we'll have to look into that. But I think, That's actually, awesome. I don't know what we're going to do next because we have to figure it out. I'm pretty sure Razor came out after season three. Okay. I'm going to have to look at this, but it, but I think it's, um, let me see, Battlestar sequential viewing. Because I think, yeah, Battlestar Galactica viewing order. So, yeah, miniseries season one, season two. And then, yeah, people suggest Razor, although. Uh, the dialogue at the very end. Yeah, so I think maybe what we'll do is we'll watch season three next and then do Razor, because even though Razor does take place there, there is a, it does apparently spoil. OK, a little bit of season four. Oh, really? So, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting to note. Yeah, we got to watch so, out for that. Yeah, and then it gets all crazy at the end of like season four. Like some of those episodes, I think are like two or three hours long. So there's a lot. There's a lot to get into. I'm excited about it. So we, we yeah, we'll do. We're doing Metal Gear Solid soon. I think we'll Ooh. probably throw another movie in there, and then uh, we'll probably get back to Battlestar. So Dig, I appreciate you uh, taking the time today to record. Super fun. You know what? I, I was just reading and I didn't realize. To, I, I I forgot to mention that the Cylons sort of Gaius at the very end of the of season two Gaius sort of brokers a peace with the Cylons and the Cylons say like look if you guys don't fight back or attack we won't there'll be no bloodshed and in the same breath that's when Starbuck is like we're gonna form we're gonna we're gonna fight back <laughs> right yeah, so exactly. that's really that's a right. great note to end it on you know yeah, it's, it's awesome because like, because Gaius is a is a it's a puppet government yeah and so he's being manipulated by them and also let's not forget that Another interesting hanging thread is that Rosalind knows subconsciously that she saw guys with six on Caprica. That's right. And so there's that whole thing, too, where she is like subconsciously aware that she identified. She knows Gaius is responsible for something. She's working she with, saw the with the model and Adama. Right. Even Adama is like, that may be true, but you have no proof of it. Oh, man, that's good shit. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's that's so, that's a, it's a great way to end. it's not. And you know what? It's a great cliffhanger from two into three. We had the great cliffhanger from one into two. This is more of a this is more of a gentle cliffhanger, but I like it just as much as Adama being shot at the end of season one. You know, it's 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 strong stuff because you really want you you really I, I don't see any way of the humans getting out of this. They're they're fighting a completely superior fighting force. They're they're severely outnumbered, right? So it's going to be interesting, man. I'm looking forward to doing this next one. Cool, man. Well, we'll do it in the coming weeks. Stig, let's wrap up as we always do with a dad joke. All right, my friend. Kyle, did you know I once got fired from a canned juice company 
Yeah, I totally couldn't concentrate. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. I like that one. You like that one? Yeah, that's all not bad. It's right. not a bad one. All right, all right. All right, Dave. Well, good to see your face and good to see all of you out there as well. Thank you for your love, kindness, and support, whether on free feeds or on Patreon at patreon.com slash media. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Until then, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show is conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel Diamore, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Jordan Mittman, Tristan Palacios, Graham Plays, Christian Rodriguez, Jad Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Anthony Fuentes, Sweaty Mitt, John Russell, Chris Kelly, Avaristo One, Dustin Graff, Israel Pena, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Josh Hallen Rui, Corbin Dallas, Tyler Watkins, Troilus True, Dan Root, Talisman, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukum, William Holt. Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, Kolike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Callan Lennon, Daniel Johnson, H-Trons, an unofficial controller podcast, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Manuel Ochoa, Jeffrey Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Galja, Of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Zach Parsley, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Martin, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Rinsler 526, Ben B, TB Lightning, Anti Kinnanen, Taylor Barkley, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Evan Dalton, Zach Allum, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, D.B. Cooper, Cody Bradbury, Tom Cargill, Richter 86, Michael J. Sutherland, Steve Hodge, Holfeldian, Ian Bravo, Noah J. Stevens, Barrett Boswell, Andrew Parker, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Mark Liberto, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Blake Israel, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Jay, Organic Produce, Travelis Archuleta, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algaret, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubber, Ray Lagia, Josh Yeager, Turbo Makes Games, Dan Parson, Martin Beck, Gavin, Brian Watkins, Joe Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Brody Rainey, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, David Everett, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lewin Ray Loper, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, Zach Binkley, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Yusuf, Anton K., Brian W. Rath, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Kyle Thomas, James Kinslow III, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kinnison, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, David Mann, Petro Rose, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Carson Peterson, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Mad Mock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming.